Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting work and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. The person we're speaking to today is Dr. Annette Bradford, and the book that we're going to be talking about is the 2018 volume English Medium Instruction in Japanese Higher Education, Policy, Challenges, and Outcomes. Good day, Annette. How are you doing? Good morning, Chris. Thank you. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. I'd like to get into speaking uh, about the book. Now, it was it's on the topic of English medium instruction. Uh, how long have you been working and researching in this field? Well, I've been working in international education in some form of, or another for almost 25 years now, starting out as an English language teaching assistant during my year abroad in Germany um, as a university student. And I've held uh, various teaching positions and also worked as an international student coordinator in the US. But I shifted focus from language teaching and applied linguistics to um, education administration and policy studies with my doctorate degree. So that's when I really started to become interested in English medium instruction and looking at how it is implemented as a, as a policy rather than looking specifically at classroom outcomes. Now, this is an uh, edited volume. Of course, many people submitting work to you. Uh, the book was published in 2018, but uh, how long in total did it take from the concept of the book to its actual publication? Well, I was coming to the end of my doctoral research and wanted to make use of all of the things I'd learnt, but I wanted to publish something broader than just the results of my study. And I'd met Tommy Grover from Multilingual Matters at a conference in the summer of 2014. Um, he taught me a little bit about the publishing process, and that convinced me that a book wasn't out of my reach. So I can't remember exactly when I approached the co-editor, Howard Brown. However, I remember that we went out for dinner at the 2014 JOUT conference and um, as many good projects do, this one started to take shape as notes on a napkin, as we kind of made <laughs> notes on um, potential contributors. So it was three years from that November until we actually had hard copies in hand in November 2017. Yeah, so the process, yeah, it was a pretty long one. We solicited chapter authors in the spring of 2015, submitted our book proposal in, I think, April of that year. We received a contract in July. And then after many rounds of editing, we were ready to submit the final manuscript in, I think it was April 2016. Mm. But then came perhaps the most frustrating part for us as it we didn't get the reviews back until November of that year. So we waited between April and November, kind of thinking, well, we want to continue working on this book. What's happening now? And uh, it, it, it took a long time to get a reviewer for the manuscript. But after that, fortunately, it went pretty quickly. Uh, only minor revisions, and we submitted everything again in Jan January of 2017. How much creative control does the publisher have over the work that goes into the book? Uh, did you get any feedback on that? Not much, really. We submit the proposal for review 
I can't remember if we, I think we got two blind reviewers on the proposal, not quite sure, and then a reviewer for the full manuscript. And as anything, you know, you can take on a, on board as, as many kind of changes as you want, but the overall shape of the book, the, the content of the chapters, no, um, we had full control over that. It sounds like you had a good amount of control there. So that's a, a positive thing for future publishers to know that once you've decided on the work and you've done the editing for yourself, the publisher is going to trust that you've made good decisions and uh, that, the, that the work is um, publishable under their name. You mentioned that it felt like it went fairly smoothly, but if you were to do this again, what would you do differently, if anything? The first thing that springs to mind would be to ask the publisher what the eventual price of the book would be mm. and if it would be available as a paperback because our book when it came out was pretty expensive and I was shocked as a new editor I didn't know to ask that mm. you know and uh, yeah and I, I think it was about 19,000 yen when it when it first came out yeah 19,000 um, yen would make it about 140 pounds 130 pounds mm -hmm. Something like that, yeah, yeah, I think. And that's way out of the reach of most people. Even if you've got a research budget, you don't really want to spend that much on a book. So, I mean, I suspect that's the case for many volumes on a specialist topic. But in the future, I would like to sort of ask the publisher what they envision the price to be and ask if it would ever go into paperback, which with certain publishers, they have rules that after 18 months or so, it will transition into paperback. So I'd probably search that out in the future. Now I'm series editor for a, uh, a Routledge series. And so I've seen a good number of book proposals in recent years. And I've really noticed how important it is for the chapters in any edited volume to fit together to tell a coherent story. Howard and I tried to do that with our book, and I hope we succeeded. But I would say that would be the, the one of the major things to look at, because I think it's a big source of rejection of edited volumes. What kind of percentage of proposals get accepted? Hmm, I really don't know on that. In this the book series that we're doing, I would say most get accepted, but that, but they go through quite a bit of work. I mentioned that with our book, with Multilingual Matters, we didn't have a lot of work to do. In fact, we didn't have to make any changes to our proposal. However, I don't think that's the case with a lot of proposals. We will work with our potential authors now um, and go through two or three, even four revisions of a proposal before we send it off for blind peer review. Once, then once it's got through blind peer review, then it will generally get accepted. Well, you said that part of the process of getting your book published was to sign a publication contract. Yes. Obviously, the, the price of the book wasn't included in the contract, but what, what is included in the contract? The percentage of your royalties is included in there. That's the only bit that I think was important to me. Um, other than that, I can't remember. You can look at it and get a little bit worried about, oh, who's going to have control over my book? Mm. But then I think I just had to let go of any worries and say, well, these are just standard. I mean, everybody signed them. It's still my book. Well, you mentioned the price point because this is something that a lot of these types of books that are published by uh, Routledge and Multilingual Matters, this is a fairly standard 
price point these days. And I think they're either aiming at libraries or, as you say, people with research budgets. In your experience, do you think that this is uh, going to be a, a sustainable market? Uh, or do you think it's going to move more online and maybe there's going to be less call for these types of publications in the future? I suppose there will be less uh, less call in the future uh, because it's not sustainable at that price point, really, is it? Considering there's so much free stuff online and, and people are sharing free copies of these books. But I think it's a very tricky business for publishers to be in. They've, they have to put their prices that high because there is so much stuff being shared for free that they've got costs that they have to cover. Unfortunately, those costs get passed down to people who want to buy the books. I assume that more and more will just be published as ebooks. I mean, a lot of things are, are only um, in hard copy on demand these days, aren't they? And I think that trend is going to continue. The topic of the book is uh, English medium instruction. And is that the topic of the edited series that you're working on now? The series, if I remember correctly, is called English Medium Instruction in Higher Education. And it's a focus series, which is one of Routledge's series of short-form books. So the books are between sort of, 25 and 45,000 words, and each book is supposed to focus in on one quite narrow aspect of English medium instruction. Mm. And the reason that we chose to uh, put our series in that form was that EMI is growing and changing very rapidly. So to get the new research out there quickly is uh, an important goal for us. Um, we, we figured, you know, our, our own book took us three years. Um, it would be better to, for the community to get the research out there more quickly than that. So for people who are interested in the topic but don't know very much about it in different places, uh, what would you say is the state of EMI in Japan right now? I would say that EMI is kind of finding its footing a little bit more right now. We saw a rapid increase where a lot of universities were quickly trying to jump on the bandwagon and implement EMI courses. I haven't been following the research so closely over the last year or so, but from what I have been seeing, there seems to be a growth in programs that are starting to balance English medium instruction with Japanese medium instruction, doing a lot of sort of hybrid teaching in the curriculum. So I, I think the race to change everything into English is certainly slowing. The use of English um, for taught programs, for you know, for content-based programs, uh, has run into uh, obstacles in other countries where it has been implemented. Uh, has Japan experienced the same type of obstacles, or did they learn from the experiences of other places? Yeah, Japan's run into quite a few obstacles. In my opinion, probably not as many as some people think. I'm, you see a lot of negativity about these mm. kind of classes written in articles, and I'm generally not as negative. But there have been stumbling blocks. One of the, from a non-teaching point of view, um, I would say some of the biggest stumbling blocks are to do with administration. Um, you know, a university might have a fairly good program taught in English, but then 
international students who have come to that university believing that they can complete all of their studies in English are having issues in the administrative offices, joining student clubs, things like that. So the, the whole infrastructure for international students who don't speak much Japanese is still somewhat lacking in a lot of institutions. Although over recent years, that's been changing. I mean, as, as with anything in Japan, it changes slowly. And I do believe like Japan will get there. It's interesting because we had uh, Dr. Mabube Rakshanderu on the podcast a few weeks back, and she was talking about it from the student's perspective. She had chosen her course coming over from Iran, and she'd chosen her course to make sure that she could complete all of the required parts of it in English because she didn't have the Japanese skill. So if someone is listening to this outside of Japan and is interested in coming and taking courses in Japan, at about how many universities now can you take a fully taught English taught program? I'm actually in the middle of tr of trying to compile a comprehensive list. When I carried out the study f studies for the book, I had counted about 25, 28 programs um, that were fully taught in English. But that was, you know, a good five, six years ago. And there are many more now. Um, the list that I'm building currently stands at about 80 or 90. But don't, don't quote me on that because I'm still digging into, you know, how much of it really is in English or how much is it in Japanese. But, you know, as I said, the, the shape of English taught programs is, is kind of changing. There are still a few that are expressly marketed towards international students even a few that where Japanese students are not really allowed to apply. Um, however, the programs are becoming more international in nature rather than English taught right. with a mix. And so um, it's a little bit harder to define EMI program right now be because there is that mix and students can sort of take take their own path through the programs. There seems to be a lot of programs that are growing where students can really choose what they want to do and build their own program. We've been having a bit of back and forth this week about my university, Kyushu University, and whether some of the new programs that they put in place for the top global university project or the super global university mm -hmm. project, depending on which language you read it in, and what really defines an English taught program and and what isn't or what's kind of there or it's a blend. So I, I got a little bit of experience this week of the, of the type of frustrations that you go through trying to just get hold of the information because oftentimes the information is not provided in exactly the same manner or the, exactly the same information in in both languages. So digging around and trying to get the information must be quite a, quite a task. Yes, yes, we're definitely finding that, that uh, the information provided in English and in Japanese is often different because on their websites, at least, they're marketing to two different audiences often. But, uh, how, but I'm encouraged to see this blend sort of happening because I think if you're coming to Japan without knowing any Japanese, starting off a program totally in English and then as you study some Japanese, taking a few classes in Japanese or in a hybrid English-Japanese format is, is a positive thing because why are you in Japan if you don't want to 
pick up a little bit of the language and culture kind of thing. So, so I'm all for these kind of programs. But as you said, at the moment, it's difficult to quite define what they are. I learned a little bit more about my university's efforts through speaking to uh, one of the professors on your behalf. That is the view of the university, that they provide them with interim classes that are only English taught, but by the time they get into their third and fourth year, there is this expectation that they will take on the opportunities of language learning and avail themselves of the Japanese taught courses as well. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that should be the way that that everyone is is heading. I mean, if if an international student wants to come to Japan to study in Japan, then they want there was some value from that, some unique value to take to potentially take back home afterwards. And the unique value would be, hey, I I managed to study Japanese and and learn some content in Japanese and can operate in that medium when they when they get back home. And I think that's the one a unique aspect that Japan can offer is you know we've heard a lot of criticism why would international students come to Japan and study in English they can get a better quality education elsewhere. There's also the possibility that uh, having come out here and uh, fallen in love with the country as as I did that they choose to stay and work after they graduate. It's a project that's kind of at the forefront of what Japan is trying to do for both for international students, but also for its citizens, uh, which is the concept of global jinzai. Could you tell our listeners a little something about your understanding of that? Global jinzai is a term that when it's, when it's translated, it's often, it's often, often translated into global talent or global human resources, globally competent individuals. It doesn't sound very nice when it's translated. You're but right. the uh, <laughs> yeah, the the sentiment is a good sentiment. So we'll probably keep it as global jinzai when we talk about it. But um it's to nurture students who are skilled and capable of working in the global arena. Um, students with intercultural competence, intercultural communication skills, um, a knowledge of, of different people and different countries in the world. And I really believe that's an admirable goal. And I don't think that can be achieved with English medium instruction alone, whether it's for international students or domestic Japanese students. Um, but it's achieved most effectively with a sort of hybrid model. I agree. And reminds me of how Japanese education policies often tend to be couched in the idea that they are additive, uh, so they, they don't subtract from the person's Japanese-ness, uh, but they add something to the person to improve them. I'm reminded of the, the 2003 education policy, uh, which was termed, I think the term was, uh, Japanese with English abilities, but that, yeah. that they would mediate their understanding of international affairs through English, but for the purposes of remaining and improving as part of the Japanese human resource, as it were. So this is often the way that Japanese policies are couched. Like, we're not going to take anything away from you. We're just going to add something helpful. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, you'll see criticism of that, saying, oh, there's nationalism, everything is, is couched with this, you have to remain Japanese. But, of course, Japanese people are Japanese, of course they're going to remain Japanese. So, I mean, I, I think it, it's good to 
add things to so that you can work in um, any number of sort of international environments. Um, but of course, you've got to still be able to work at home in your own country. So yeah, yeah, I think uh, the the whole concept of global jinzai is is a an admirable goal. I think it's emerged from all through the, the, the 2000s. The, the debate back and forth was the tension between Japanese-ness, which was, you know, which was the kind of, uh, translation of Nihonjin Rong, and then mm-hmm. the idea of, uh, Koksaika, or, or the, uh, internationalization. And it was always couched as there being this kind of tension. By the time we've got into mm-hmm. the, the, the tens and when your book was being produced, I think that there was a much more kind of positive view that it would be global jinzai is a, a more positive way of looking at that thing that was uh, often viewed as a tension. Yes, I certainly hope that that is how people view it now, because there's absolutely nothing to be gained of putting people into two boxes and saying you can either be you know Japanese or or international, and those are you know two different things. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm hoping that that uh, people are are seeing global jinzai as positive and i certainly feel that with my students of course when i teach i teach in english so i'm naturally usually teaching those students who who want to embrace um, international environments Um, but i i don't see the tensions kind of bubble up with the students just to Talk about one other area that might be uh, a criticism or something negative. I recently interviewed Dr. Amar Mabub from uh, the University of Sydney, and his work in English as a Lingua Franca talks about the need for language ecology and to protect linguistic environments from invasion by global languages like English. Do you think that there's been a negative effect on other taught courses in, in university by the push towards having more English medium instruction? Do you think the taught courses that would normally have been in Japanese, that their effectiveness has been negatively affected by the push towards using English? I don't think so in the case of Japan, because that would imply that much more sort of English Englishization than is actually happening. Um, one of the criticisms leveled at EMI is that it's sort of often an afterthought and added on. And to me, that implies that all of the Japanese classes are still going ahead as normal. And if you want to study a certain topic in Japanese, you can still study that topic in Japanese. And the English ones are just sort of if extra. And if a professor would also like to teach his program in English, he or she can. So I don't think it's, I don't think that we are heading to that kind of domain loss, as some people say in Japan, where mm. you can only reach the higher levels of education if you're studying it in English. I think there are still plenty of opportunities to study whatever you like in Japanese. Um, I think students, if they would like to study um, a certain topic in English that is now becoming more available to them. But I don't think people are being sort of pushed into a track of, well, if you want to study this topic, you can only study it in English or anything like that here. That would be a, a positive point with perhaps Japan's slower uptake of EMI as compared to um, some European countries, for example. Right. So they've managed to 
by being their usual deliberate selves, they've put the you know the thought and the barriers in place to make sure that it, English isn't going to have those kind of negative effects. And certainly, uh, other countries hopefully uh, could learn from uh, some of the things that Japan is doing. To move on, you are currently an adjunct fellow at the Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies. Could mm -hmm. you could you tell us a little something about your about your current work? So, um, for the Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies, I'm involved in helping to put together um, some of their seminar series, which with the, the pandemic is a little bit on hold at the moment, but I'm also um, engaged in writing a few articles uh, for them. Um, but then, on a more, for a more personal project, I have started along with Howard Brown and also Shingo Hanada from Toyo University, I've started working on a project looking at the graduation outcomes of students in English medium instruction programs. So with many of the G30 programs, the Global 30 policy, um, with many of those programs sort of heading up on 10 years of operation now, mm. it seems an opportune time to look at well, what are the students doing when they graduate from those programs that are taught in English? You know, what what were the benefits or what were the disadvantages for the students? So uh, um, again, with the pandemic, it's 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 a little bit slow the 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 movement on that, but it's a project that we're starting. That sounds really interesting. I mean, it the passage of time is something that you don't think about until you look at the dates of some of these programs, as you say, and like the. You know, the Global 30, which was the push to get 300,000 international students into Japan by this year, 2020. Uh, when mm -hmm. I explain the G30 or I'm doing any presentations or I'm talking about the G30, uh, I, my usual spiel is, is to say by 2020. And then you stop and you realize, oh, that's this year. So that's you know, yes. 13 years have passed since I started looking into this type of uh, this field. It's certainly gone very, very quickly. When I first started looking at the G30, it was this new policy that had you know, only been announced a year ago and, and universities hadn't really acted upon it yet. They were still deliberating. And now suddenly you're looking at it saying, gosh, some of these programs started in April 2010. You know, that's 10 years now that they've been teaching full degree programs in English. Yeah, it's gone very fast. And now the uh, top global, super global university project uh, is only four years away from being completed. And of course, EMI courses were a big part of that. So one would hope that by the end of this funding period, uh, that the positive outcomes have been achieved. Hopefully, that's what we're uh, attempting to find out. So uh, we'll see. Yeah. Now, you and uh, Howard Brown are they, you'd be considered among experts in EMI in Japan. Do you get any possibility to inform what might be the next policy? Do, has anyone approached you or do you have any avenues, for example, through the Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies? Do you have any access to the policy makers and the decision makers? Um, in a word, no. <laughs> um, I, would, uh, I would hope that the publications are having a little bit of influence 
not at those top policy levels, but influencing those on the on the ground and those who are there helping to design new curricula and programs in their university, pushing the influence that way, sort of bottom up rather than top down. But um, with my Japanese skills not being great and being non-Japanese, I don't think I, 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 I'm in a position to to really influence the policymakers. But you know, attending conferences um, with the Japanese colleagues and uh, discussing the issues with them certainly helps because I, I've got I know a, a, a few Japanese friends who are working for Mext, etc., and helping with some of the projects. So I'm hoping to inform in a roundabout way. Well, if someone who is in a policymaking position is listening to this interview, what would be your policy prescription? One or two points that you'd like to see being implemented after Top Global ends in 2024? Mm, that's a big question. Without knowing quite how sex successful the, pro the current programs have been, a little bit hard to prescribe what should be the next step. I would encourage the inclusivity that I think we're starting to see happen. Always at the ground level, teaching staff and professors talk about their students as a whole, whether they are domestic or international. Mm. But 10 years ago with the start of the G30 program, etc., we were seeing a lot of policy rhetoric about international students and you know, the programs are for the international students and a kind of division between the two. At the classroom level, teachers sort of were more inclusive. At the curricular level, curriculum are now becoming more inclusive. And I would hope that the policies are starting to take, will start to take those, that sort of angle, um, in the, in the future. Um, not drawing divisions between these programs are for international students, these are for domestic Japanese students. You are right that they've come a long way. I mean, when I was working uh, at Litsumeikan, they were having a lot of problems uh, at the main site in Kyoto with the international students because of uh, you know placing them in dormitories that were separated and so not giving them this kind of common space for the students to congregate and to, and to mix and mingle, whereas at the Ritsumeikan Asia-Pacific University where I was working, it was policy that all first years had to live on site and they had to uh, live in, in shared dormitories, domestic Japanese student and someone from outside of Japan, and you know forcing them together from day one. And it really did change the, the attitude, the mood on campus and mean that uh, there was a lot more communication between the two populations uh, from the very beginning. Where, and I think that in the 10 years or so since, well, no, sorry, 15 years now, since uh, I witnessed that happening, I think it's something that other universities have learned a lot from the experiences of universities like Asia Pacific University and the, the larger universities now are, I, I see in my own university now that they're kind of instituting policies that uh, APU were, had started about 20 years ago. Yes. Yes, it's an encouraging sign. I mean, as as we've already alluded to, things happen slowly, but uh, they are they are happening. And uh, universities like APU and then um, AIU and Akita, um, mm. I think they they've sort of led the way on that and shown how some of these models can work. I mean, uh, 
what's the point of for an international student what's the point of coming to japan to study if you if you can't mingle with japanese students and for japanese students what's the point of going to university if you're not going to meet a whole load of of new people with different backgrounds you know the, the students don't see the divisions among people as perhaps as sort of policy makers sort of might and we should just sort of be encouraging talking about people as students rather than domestic or international. Recently I've been reading through a, a whole lot of uh, university websites searching for uh, the current English taught programs. One that stood out to me of course was ICU, International Christian University. Of course that university has been bilingual for many many years and a leader in the field of international education. But right there on one of the uh, top pages, it said, at ICU, there are no international students. Our students are students. You know, all ICU mm. students are, are the same. And I, I thought that was a very nice sentiment to, uh, to, to push. Um, because, you know, at other universities, you see students kind of othered as English track students and international students and I don't think that's very helpful for for our young people when we're trying to make everybody international or global jinzai. Mentioning International Christian University kind of takes me down memory lane and to our first meeting because uh, we were at uh, the Japanese Association of Language Teachers International Conference and I think it was 2012 and we'd gone to the same presentation as we were as we were leaving you saw my name card and you said oh i've been i've been looking to find you and it's not every day that you know attractive young ladies come up and want to talk to me so <laughs> but the person that we because you wanted to talk to me about forming a, a panel at for the uh, for a conference in korea and it was me you and mark flanagan who yeah. is from icu so i learned about icu by being part of that panel uh, with you and Mark. Yes, I think Mark completed his master's degree at ICU and has been involved with them um, for a long time since, um, including working for them. And uh, yeah, I think they have a great model for uh, fostering international awareness among all of their students. To keep on the, the topic of uh, our joint presentations, and so in the last seven or eight years that I've known you, we've presented in Korea, we went to Melbourne, and also you invited me to submit a chapter for the book, so the book that we're talking uh, about today, English Medium Instruction in Japanese Higher Education, Policy Challenges and Outcomes. You are a very productive person, and looking through your website, which I recommend uh, everyone to come and have a look at, and we'll put it, we'll put the website link uh, into the show notes. How do you maintain this high level of motivation and production and you know going to conferences and uh, networking how do you how do you remain so productive i would say researching something that you enjoy hmm. uh, um something that i've noticed uh, with with friends doing doctoral degrees is sometimes they get so bogged down with their research and because they're doing a topic that their advisor recommended them to do uh, right, right from the beginning, I 
chose to research a topic that I was interested in and already knew a little bit about. And so that keeps me motivated to, to continue with it. And also, perhaps, you know, having, obviously living in a country that's, that's not my home country. And well, I was going to say I've never been an international student, but uh, I, I have because I did my doctorate in, uh, in the US. And that's not my home country. But, you know, living outside of my home country, I feel very close to international students and our Japanese students who want to study abroad. You know, I think all of us who work in this field, we see a bit of ourselves in the students. And so we, we really want to help them. And so, again, it keeps, keeps me motivated. And uh, then on a, a, a more personal side, not having children and having a husband who works away from home a lot also gives me a lot of time to, <laughs> to sit in front of my computer. <laughs> uh, I, I was just thinking that also one of the one of those side benefits of being productive in research is having a lot to uh, speak about. And then up until recently, being able to travel and uh, experience new places, going to conferences, that is also kind of a side benefit of being a productive researcher i think yeah yeah i always have the, the best time going to conferences and i am eagerly awaiting the time when we can travel again and, and see people in person because we, i mean over the last few months we've had an awful lot of great opportunities over the internet mm. but listening to conference presentations over zoom is not as fulfilling as it is in person you know uh, we all know that we get the most out of the the social interactions at a conference you know um that i really really miss that and hope that you know by next spring we can uh, we can go off and travel again i agree and it, it's it's the incidences around the presentation that i think uh, you get kind of the most valuable interactions so the people who will speak to you beforehand or who will as very often happens, said, oh, that was an interesting point that you brought up. Do you want to go and grab a coffee? Do you want to go and uh, have a talk about it? And that's where, you know, several of my research partnerships and opportunities have uh, have occurred. And it's not something that's uh, available over Zoom, I agree. To finish, I am going to be part of a conference at the end of this month, an online conference, of course, uh, on the topic of funded research. And uh, I'll be speaking on the grants in aid that I've received in the past. Uh, and you are currently in a, a grant in aid for scientific research at the moment. Yeah. Could you, uh, I think the contents of it, we have uh, discussed quite a lot in the interview already. So to finish, could you give us some advice for maybe uh, younger researchers who are interested in gaining research funding? Do you have any advice for them or anything that they should remember when they're filling out their applications? Unfortunately, it still remains a little bit of an, an enigma to me. Um, I have applied three times and just got accepted this one time. However, as I don't work for a Japanese institution at the moment, my name is not actually on the grant. Um, Howard Brown is a principal investigator. So, you know, maybe that's why we got it, because my name's not on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, surely I'm just, not, surely uh, not. <laughs> uh, we wrote it together along with uh, Shingo Hanada. Well, three of us wrote it together, but we're, you know, how they have the different, the principal investigator and the co-researcher, et cetera, et cetera. We're all different levels on that. But um, I'm wondering if we 
got that grant because this time we really tried to design a project that would be useful for Japan, not just a project that we wanted to do. I fear that the previous two times when I applied, it was really interesting. And for us who work in this small sort of circle of English medium instruction, it was it was interesting to us. But it wasn't really interesting to policymakers. So this time we really tried to frame it in a way that would be interested to the wider Japanese populace and, and policy. So, uh, but I really don't have any idea. No, that, <laughs> that, that is, is a, why we, we got selected. Yeah. That's a really good point. And uh, would you mind if I if I borrowed it? I, I have I have some ideas of things that I'd like to say at the conference but I think that's something that would uh, certainly be a good addition because I've always agreed with the idea that if you're going to send off your application and you know it's going to be read by someone you know going to be blind reviewed and they're going to be reading you know hundreds potentially thousands of uh, applications then you kind of want to give them as many reasons to say yes and as few reasons to say no as possible. And then if you say that the outcome is going to be positive and it's going to give information that isn't currently being researched by the government, I think that's a, a good point to include. Yes, yes, please do um, repeat it by all means. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to think about where is the money coming from for any kind of research grant? Who is the funder? What benefit is the funder going to get out of this? And, you know, uh, funders they have people that they have to report to as well. So what are they going to write in their report to whoever um, as to how they've spent their money? They have to justify to somebody how they're spending their money. So you need to, if you want to get their money, it's got to be something that they can then justify to somebody else. I think that's how it would also go, um, go in many situations. I mean, um, I think it was... 2012, I was the recipient of a um, Council on Foreign Relations fellowship, which um, is funded by Hitachi. So again, in designing the proposal for that fellowship, I had to think about what are the goals of CFR, what are the goals of Hitachi in this particular incident, and how am I going to kind of work together to help them meet their goals. Yeah, and I think that would be the, the first point of departure when designing any kind of uh, funding proposal. Uh, I think that's a good um, idea to include it in any kind of research. Knowing Know your audience is always yeah. the advice that I give to students when they're you know thinking about what they're going to put in an essay or a presentation. It's like, well, who are you talking to first? And then work forward from there. Uh, I would I noticed that your grant started this year, so did, so did mine. And... I would not like to be in the final year of, of a funded project this year because the, the cycle tends to be you gather your, your work and your materials together in the early years, then you, you do the project, you gather your data, and then this is the year that you would be going places, presenting the research, producing the, the final research report. And if you have no conferences that you can, you can travel to, I think it would be a, a difficult time uh, on a funded project this year, so I um, I hope that there's going to be some dispensation for the coronavirus for those people in that unfortunate situation. Yes, yes, I hope so. I, I 
have to have faith and believe that that it, it will and that, that most of us can just basically sort of write off 2020 and say, well, yeah, that was 2020. So, you know, that's why that's why we didn't go to conferences. That's why we didn't do much then. You know, everybody's been um, struggling with that uphill battle on how to convert their classes to you know, an online format right now. So no one's had the time that they would usually spend on, on those kind of projects. So, um, yeah, I hope that a, a an emptier line in the CV for 2020 um, doesn't reflect badly, you know, isn't bad for anybody. Yeah. Well, we've, we've, we've mentioned, and, and, and this podcast is an example of it, of people learning new skills and having to, as you say, learn how to put things online. And uh, those could be positive outcomes. There was a great line from, I think it was comedian John Oliver, who talked about events in life that were catastrophes. That mm. on the one side, it's it's utterly appalling, but if you maintain a positive attitude, then there are things that you can gain from it. So I hope that's the case. Yes, yes, I do, certainly. And I think this, you know, moving online, hybrid type classes and things, I think, well, as you said, a catastrophe, um, it, it is, I can't repeat that word that, that, that you said from John Oliver, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I can't say it, but, um, you know, it's also provided a lot of opportunity for Japan's higher education internationalization. People that before were very resistant to trying new things have found, okay, it was hard, but now we've learned these new skills. I, you know, maybe I want to continue to do it, or I know that I'm capable of doing new things. So I would hope that in the next five years, we might see uh, new kinds of international programs. Well, on that positive note, uh, thank you very much for your time. The book that we've been talking about today is uh, the 2018 volume, English Medium Instruction in Japanese Higher Education, policy challenges and outcomes. Uh, if you can't afford it at its current price, then uh, please see if your university library has it. And uh, skip to my chapter. It's uh, it's well worth a read. Of course, I, I really enjoyed reading the book itself, like from all of the contributors to it and people that I know and people who I've met at conferences and to kind of learn about their ideas was um, nice to have them all in one place. So thank you for your work on that. Well, thank you, and thank you for the conversation today. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.